don't know if anybody's seen uh, my big fat Greek wedding. Um, there's uh, Maria and Tula, and uh, Maria's complaining and, uh, about that the, uh, the man is the head, so the dad's made uh, some kind of resolution she didn't like. And, and uh, Maria says, let me tell you something, Tula. The man is the head, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the man any way she wants. So, well, we'll get into it in just a minute. I want to start us off with prayer. Um, Proverbs uh, 21, 21 says, the one who pursues righteousness... And faithful love will find life, righteousness, and honor. Let's uh, bow our heads. Father God, we do desire righteousness, justice, and mercy. We long to grow in loving you and loving one another. You are our life and our righteousness, and our deeds are right only as they are aligned with your will. Honor and glory are yours. But our greatest honor is to be thought well of by you and to be welcomed into your presence. Our greatest joy is to be loved by you. Father, let the light of your presence illuminate our paths and guide us in all our ways. Let the light of your presence cleanse us so that we may be made useful to you and teach us to be holy. God, thank you for the hope we have in Christ who is our salvation and the promise of your Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We pray for your blessing upon the community of this church, asking that you would grow our hearts toward you and one another, that you would bless the leaders of the community we live in. Lead and guide the president and trustees of Spring Grove, Richmond, and the surrounding areas to make good decisions for the people who live here. We ask that you would teach the governor, the representatives of Illinois, to do what is right in your eyes, Help them to know who you are and to have a heart for what is good. We pray for the President of the United States, the Congress, the Senate, and other leaders to make decisions that are morally right and good for all people. We also lift up leaders within the church across the globe, protect them from sin, lead them in righteousness, and bless them as they follow you. Now, Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears to what is written there, In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we are on a series on Christian leadership, and this series is based primarily on um, the two letters that uh, Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy. So that's uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy. And you can find these letters, if you have your Bibles with you, between 2nd Thessalonians and Titus. It's towards the end of your Bible, um, sandwiched between those two Books. Now, uh, today we've stumbled upon a fairly controversial passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And if ever there was a passage that might tempt a, a pastor not to preach a text, it would be the one that we have today. So we will uh, boldly move on and, uh, and hope everything goes well. <laughs> um, but I thought if I have to answer some hard questions today, it's only fair that you should as well. And so I have three questions for you. I encourage you, if you want to, to write them down. But think about these questions here. Uh, The first one is, how is your prayer life? How are you doing in the area of prayer? Uh, Second, uh, how often do you pray for the leaders in this country, for our community, and in our church? I heard someone chuckle about the leaders in Illinois doing what is right. Number three, 
What is your view of gender roles of men and women in the church? Do they have the same function? Are there differences that we should celebrate or take note of? So those are the three questions. Those are the three questions we'll be asking of ourselves today in relation to this text. Um, Now, my hope for us is that together we might be challenged uh, regarding prayer, regarding prayer for leaders, and that we'll think carefully about um, the issue of gender roles in the context of the local church. Now, as we remember the context of this passage, I want to read something from pastor, author, and theologian John Stott. Uh, He said, the apostle, this letter, is concerned through Timothy to regulate the life of the church. He began with doctrine, urging Timothy to counter false teaching and to remain himself loyal to the apostolic faith. He continues now with conduct of public worship. So Stott tells us that Paul's letter to Timothy is to help regulate the life of the local church. And I might add that Paul's letter is not simply to help regulate the life of the local church, but to give Timothy a vision for what the life in the local church ought to be like. So last week, we learned that the local church must have right doctrine. Uh, It must, uh, and doctrine is simply another word for the truth. So the truth that the, the church, the local church shares, must be correct and sound and good and biblical. Whether we like it or not, it must be sound and good. Maybe he uh, said that before we have this hard text right now for a reason. I don't know. But with that in mind, we're going to just take a look at this very first verse in uh, 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, when Paul uses the word first of all, we start looking for second of all, and third of all, and fourth of all. We start looking for a sequential list, but that's not what Paul means here when he says first of all. He means primary, of utmost importance. The first thing, if we're going to start talking about public worship, we need to begin with prayer. Prayer is of the utmost importance. That's why we're we're calling it the first thing. Now, I recently spoke with a, uh, a young man entering the ministry. And uh, this young man, uh, we were talking about different things that he would need in order to be a good Christian leader. And, uh, and one of the, the things on the list was, uh, you know, can you uh, start a group? Have you ever started a group of people that have a common, have a common purpose? They could be studying the Bible together. They could be doing service together, they, any number of things. But, but uh, have you started a group that people will, that you'll lead other people in? And he said, well, yes, um, but it didn't go well. And I said, well, what type of group was it? He said, well, it was a prayer group. I said, well, you, you've tried to start with the hardest thing first. Um, prayer groups are actually kind of hard to start. Uh, I said, maybe you should try something else first and then come back and try a prayer group. Now, that bit of advice and his experience is... Uh, sort of an indictment against the church. And to some degree, it's hard to start a group that's centered around prayer. And why is a prayer group hard to start? Well, less people are willing to come to that group. It seems that while this young man's experience uh, was it's hard to start that group, 
we as Christians are called to be a people of prayer. Now, Paul urged Timothy to pray and encourage others with prayer, um, with, uh, I'm sorry, petitions, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving. And, uh, and I just want to make those uh, clear for us. So uh, we have them up on the screen here, or back behind me here. Uh, petitions are to ask something of God. Uh, prayer, uh, I think in this context, is talking to God. Uh, number four, intercession is to intervene. We kind of know what intercede means. We're going to do something on someone else's behalf. And then the fourth one is to thank God. So we'll be going through those uh, briefly. Now, we should present our requests to God, trusting him to answer them. And some people say, well, I've asked certain things of God, uh, and he hasn't answered them, or at least he hasn't answered them yet. One of the uh, struggles that we have through prayer is what if God says no, because he very well might or he might have a different answer than what we pray for, or he might take a long time. I've actually had a, a long-term prayer request I almost just stopped praying for. It was de a decades-long prayer request that my dad would come to know Christ. And God answered that prayer when my dad was 72. You know how long I had to pray for him? It was a long, long time. And God was not answering that prayer. What if we had to continue to, to pray for to God, not knowing how things are going to be resolved, or even, like my dad's mother, never saw my dad come to Christ. Um, trusting that God might even answer that prayer after we're dead, in some cases. That our faith is built as we trust God in these petitions and asking God for things, whether or not God answers in our timing or in our way. God wants us to present a request to him. One of the problems with prayer, though, is sometimes our prayers look like a laundry list. They look like, uh, you know, pray for this, pray for this, pray for this, pray for this, I'm done. Now, if you had a relationship with someone else, and the only thing you ever did was to ask of them certain things, both you and him or her would become subsequently exhausted. Can you imagine a relationship like that, you know, or your child just constantly asking you for things and nothing else? It's only asking, petitioning. Well, those sorts of prayers discourage people from continuing to pray. There are other things that we need to do when it comes into the context of prayer. And Paul doesn't exhaust the list here. He just gives some suggestions. The second one is to talk to God, pray to God. What does that look like? I was so encouraged. Um, uh, so we said it had a little bit of a discouraging story, but uh, there, and an encouraging story. Uh, I was out with some uh, people with the church plant, and uh, we went to a restaurant, and there was a, a, a server that came up to us, and one of the, uh, the men from our group said, uh, you know, is it possible that we could pray for you? Uh, is there anything that you would like us to pray for? We typically do that before a meal. We'd love to pray for you. And uh, this server was so delighted with that, uh, with that offer and uh, gave us, she gave us several things to pray for and stood there while we prayed for her. And for the person who uh, suggested that uh, from our group, it wasn't, uh, this wasn't a one-off. This is just sort of the way that he lived his life. And, uh, and so I was so encouraged because sometimes prayer is just talking to God in the context of normal life. Sometimes we think we need to get up early in the morning and, and pray, and that's, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But what if we prayed on all sorts of different occasions, and they don't all need to be long prayers. Sometimes they're short prayers. 
We just sort of talk to God all day long. Now, the third on our list is intercession. Intervene. We know that Jesus is our intercessor. He is the one who intercedes with God the Father on our behalf. But sometimes uh, we bring people before him in prayer. We lift people up to God in prayer. And in this way, we, we intercede on others' behalf. Someone that just really desperately needs our prayers. Now, we might intercede on our own behalf because we're struggling with something, and we might be tempted to intercede on our family's behalf, uh, our children or our parents, and, and that's good. But what if we interceded more broadly than that? What if we interceded with the waiter or waitress uh, that we met in, at that restaurant or, or people that we meet on the daily course of life as we're walking by a neighbor's house? What if we interceded for that neighbor? Uh, we're supposed to intercede on the behalf of others um, as Christians, little Christ, we're supposed to bring others before the throne of God in prayer. And then the fourth in the category, I think, is the most healing one and the best one on the list in some ways. Because uh, when we thank God, and, and by the way, Romans 1, the biggest indictment against God's people is they forgot who God, God was and they forgot to thank him for it. Um, thankfulness, when we thank God, we remember how he's worked faithfully in our past so we can trust him in the future. So what thankfulness does is it honors God for the way he has acted in our lives, for the good things that he has done, uh, but it also enlarges our heart and our mind and our soul as we do that because uh, all of a sudden we're remembering the good. We're even, even the things that have been hard but they've been good in the past. And when we do that, it helps us to trust God and increases our faith for the future. So, um, question, um, who would God have me pray for? Who would he have me intercede for? What petitions, uh, what would God have me ask of him? How can I be aligned in God's will and ask him for the very things he would want me to ask him of in the first place? And, how can I make a lifestyle of this? And then how can I be thankful? How can I increase my thankfulness? And sometimes, uh, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle if I get, uh, I, I think praying for, to God on your knees is a wonderful thing, and I love doing that. But some, in certain positions, I'm more inclined to fall asleep than others. You might find that your best time praying to God is on the lawnmower. Or you might find that your best time praying to God is while you're doing the laundry or doing any number of chores or, or walking or, uh, any, or talking with a friend and you, inter, you uh, intermingle with prayer. Uh, it doesn't need to be one single thing. All right, well, th that's the first question. And, uh, and, I, and by the way, on each of these questions, let's, let's just make them personal and say, what am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about this? I've learned something about it. What am I going to do about it? Well, the second question is how often do we pray for leaders in our country, our community, and in our church? I'm going to reverse the order of this passage a little bit for you. So, um, brothers and sisters, consider this. Do we want to do what is good and pleases God our Savior? And all uh, the Christian brothers and sisters here said, yeah. well, kind of weak here, Let's oh, just one more time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right? Yes, we want to. Okay, so... Uh, and that's in verse 2-3. In verse 2-2, it says, we should pray for kings and those in authority. 
Because praying for kings and those in authority is good and pleases God. Why? So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, it may be difficult for us to understand the importance of living out our lives quietly and peacefully in all godliness and holiness. In 197 AD, Tertullian, one of the church leaders, wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, by which he meant that there are times that God used those who died on behalf of Christ to grow the church. And indeed, God has done that. And in Scripture, God has done that. He used Stephen in Acts 7 to grow the church and the subsequent persecution. But the normative thing, we're not to pray for persecution, nor do we want to. The normative situation is that God would grant a situation where there is peace and there is ability to converse and the people might see the reality of our lives and say, I want that. I want to be like those people who follow and trust in God. That requires um, both the environment to live in that is like that. It also requires intentionality on our part to be holy and godly, to live lives that are honoring to God and that people would want to emulate. So what about bad leaders? Should we pray for them? Did you know that four of the last seven governors in Illinois ended up in prison? What the heck? We could do better picking people off the street. Four of the last seven. That's, that's worse than 50%. Should we pray for them? Well, we might disagree with positions that, um, that leaders hold. Uh, Romans 13 tells us that God establishes authorities. And we're like, well, couldn't God establish better authorities? In his sovereignty, God establishes authorities. And it is right and good for us to pray for these authorities, whether we agree with their policies or not. Being a Republican or Democrat is not synonymous with being a Christian. Let me repeat that because I think some of us struggle with that. Being a Republican or Democrat is not synonymous with being a Christian. There may be positions that Republicans or Democrats hold that are Christian positions, but we want to be very careful about aligning too closely our political views and our faith views because should they part, which one do we need to go with? We need to go with our faith. And to go with our whatever's written in Scripture, even if, it, if we disagree with it, and even if our political stance is different than it. That's the bellwether. All right, so whether or not they're good or bad leaders, whether or not they're Republican or Democrat, um, regardless, we're to pray for our leaders. And I confess that this is an area that at times I've done better or worse on. Uh, sometimes it's a little more on my radar screen than others, and maybe that's the same for you. But what if we prayed for those people that are in power, whether it's our local community, whether it's our, our county, our state, or our, our, the government, um, the federal government, or even uh, world powers? What if we started praying for those folks? What would that do? Well, if God listened to our prayers, that would be incredible, and he does. And it also puts it on our radar screen and enlarges our mind and our heart and our soul. We are to pray for those people, and we're to pray for, specifically, that God would help them to make good decisions that will enlarge his kingdom, enlarge God's kingdom, 
not the kingdom of the governor or the president of the United States, but God's kingdom. And that's what we want to take, uh, see take place. And why should we do this? It says, um, what does God want? This is from 1 Timothy 4. And the answer is, he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the point of this whole exercise. Um, what does God want? I'm going to make you answer me after this, so listen to me. Um, he wants all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. What does God want? Yeah. Okay, so God wants all people to be saved. He wants salvation. And he wants them to come into a knowledge of the truth. In verse 5, this is how it will happen. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, Christ, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all people. So God wants all people to be saved, come to a knowledge of the truth. He's going to do this through the means of Jesus Christ, who came as a ransom for all people. Now, if you think about a ransom, if there was a, uh, someone who was, needed to be ransomed, maybe they'd been captured by the enemy, they need to be ransomed. What do they need to be ransomed from? Well, they need to be ransomed from captivity. The very image that's brought to mind in Jesus' ransoming is captivity. And so if we think about the captivity that people are under, and we think what he wants to bring them to is a knowledge of the truth, what they need to be ransomed from is not knowing the knowledge of the truth. The shackles people are under are the shackles of deception and lies, and they are strong. People are in chains. People are in shackles. They cannot do other than they would normally do because these chains are made of strong deceptions and lies. And the whole world is under a cloud of deception. So Jesus came, and this is, a, um, if you look at Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he unrolls a scroll of Isaiah, and he reads it from them in, uh, in, the, in their presence. And this is from Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery, the sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is why we should pray for all people, because Jesus came to ransom them from deception and lies, of believing, that, um, believing that they're their own God, or believing the things God made is, uh, are better than the God who gave them, of believing that there's no God, of believing all sorts of lies that keep them from the truth or even hanging on to a lack of forgiveness or something personally that keeps them from God. There are all sorts of deceptions, um, but there is one truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 8, 32, if you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you see the, the connection there? So if captivity is deception, Jesus is the truth. And the truth will set you free. And this is why we witness with our good and godly lives to other people, both in the way we live our lives and in the message that we share. Now Paul said 
that uh, this is why he came. I'm telling you the truth. That uh, and I'm not lying, but I be, this is why I became an apostle to the Gentiles. He wanted to share this message with them and train up others to do the same. So, we'll go back to our question here, uh, praying for leaders. How often am I praying for leaders of our country, of our community, of our, of, of their, and then how often am I praying for church leaders? We, we see in the news um, pastors, different church leaders that, that fall uh, based on, on personal sin or, or even things that people say about them or um, all sorts of things take place. We need to pray for those leaders. We need to pray for the, the, the governor of Illinois. Whether we uh, believe in what he's doing or whether we disagree with what he's doing, certainly we should disagree with some of the things that he's doing but we still need to pray. Now, um, the third question that we're going to is uh, the issue of gender roles. So what is your view on the comparative roles of men and women? Okay, now we're into it. He's like, finally, you've been waiting all this time. Okay, I'm gonna wake up now. Are men and women equal? If so, do men and women have the same function? Are there differences we should celebrate and take note of and this section comes in three parts. The first is, uh, and I'm just going to call it uh, angry men, adorned women, and uh, the roles of, of men and women. So uh, d- does this seem strange to you when we get to uh, um, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 8? Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up their holy hands. And by the way, so, you know, if you're worshiping and you hold up your hands or you clap or whatever, God bless you. I think that that is awesome. Personally uh, and personality-wise, I don't have any rhythm. So if you don't see me doing something, just don't, don't follow me on it. And, it. and lifting my hand up like this is extremely uncomfortable just because the way it's brought up and everything else. But if that's you, do it. It's awesome. We, and, and, you know, we're, we're just, we're a family here. So whatever, however you worship, that's great. Um, but so, so far, so good. Lifting up holy hands um, without anger or disputing. You're like, What? What's the, what's the anger and disputing part in here? Why would the, the men lift up their hands and prayer, and they shouldn't be angry or disputing? Somehow anger and, and, and other versions say controversy are inhibiting the prayers of the men in this congregation in Ephesus. You go, what, what's going on here? A couple thoughts. Um, one is, uh, since... Paul's just been talking about authorities and different um, uh, differences. Certainly, the authorities back then were no better than the authorities today. And maybe some of these controversies are getting in the way of their prayers. Other things that could be getting in the way of their prayer is um, unresolved anger, because he does mention the word anger here. And, you know, forgiveness is an interesting thing, because sometimes we don't want to extend forgiveness to other people because we think we'll be giving a gift to them. But forgiveness is actually a gift we give to ourselves. Not forgiving someone else is like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. So something is inhibiting these men from worshiping well, from praying well, and it has to do with anger and controversy. And Paul said, that thing you're holding on to, put it down. And if you need to forgive someone, forgive them. Uh, If there's some 
political controversy or something that's got you all riled up, put that down. Pray for those leaders. Lift up your hands and trust God in your current situation because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything else is underneath him. Well, I want to give enough time here to women's clothing, so we're going to jump on to that next. And I, and I think here, as I, uh, as I think of Paul, the word political correctness just doesn't come to mind. I don't think that, uh, I think that Paul, once he starts on women's clothing and hairstyles, and what is he, he's got hair and clothing and jewelry, he's, he's got the three big ones, he, he puts his foot in his mouth, and then when he starts talking about submission, it's like he shoves his foot all the way down. But we're, we're going to get into this and talk about what, is, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by um, the clothing thing here? I want women to dress modestly, he says in verse 9, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothing. ESV actually says women should not have braided hair, which is probably the root of it all, but... Um, NIV and CSB and other versions are basically saying that uh, actually, while that's the, the uh, tighter interpretation of that word, there's kind of a broader one just saying, you know, elaborate hairstyles. And indeed, if you look at the, what was going on at that time, there were elaborate hairstyles. And there were a lot of other things going on as well. I love what John Stott says about this verse, so we'll, we'll start with this. Um, There's no biblical warrant in these verses for women to neglect their appearance, conceal their beauty, or become dowdy or frumpish. The question is how they should adorn themselves. And then we need to remember the context of the situation in Ephesus. So clothing and hairstyle and jewelry has, have different meanings in different cultures. This is uh, from John Stott. Christian women who would um, want to make sure that they, the way they adorn themselves would in no way resemble the hundreds of prostitutes who were employed by the great goddess Diana's temple. And then uh, one of the church fathers said, imitate not, therefore, the courtesans. By such dress, they allure their many lovers. So we know that there's something going on in Ephesus that's related to the dress of these women. It's related to the way they're presenting themselves. And I think, well, you know, the temple Diana's, or Diana's temple doesn't actually show up here in America. So we're off the hook, right? What do we have that's comparable? Um, maybe this dial of MTV or, or the, you know, the different um, things we see on TV that are more alluring uh, and they are meant to, uh, to evoke different feelings in men. Um, I do want to be careful here because I don't want uh, to be legalistic in any way when it comes to women's clothing or hair. Or, you, know, you see Christ, you know, Christian women with bonnets on and things like that. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. And in Africa, there may be uh, women that have elaborate hairstyles, and maybe it's not a problem because they're neither expensive nor they have anything to do with their sexuality. It's just something they do in their culture. But if there's, if there's a message that we're presenting by the way we present ourselves physically, we want it to be a Christian message. And maybe that's the underlying question behind all of this, is the way that I'm presenting myself a good way of doing it. Is it honoring to God? Is it blessing others? 
is it not just about me? And on the inside of this, Peter helps us to understand um, a little bit more. First Peter 3, 3 through 4, Peter says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles, wearing gold, gold jewelry, or fine clothes. The same thing Paul just said. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Have you ever noticed uh, there are extremely attractive people that become less attractive the more you get to know them, and there are people that are not physically attractive become more attractive the more you get to know them because something inside of them is beautiful. And what we're hearing from both Paul and Peter is the thing that you should be most concerned about is the inside beauty. Grow that. Grow that. Become beautiful and holy and good inside. It will radiate out. And that is the thing that lasts. Well, now we get into the hardest section here. Uh, the section on, do you think it's the hardest? I don't know. Um, the section on gender roles, okay? Um, so there are two theological terms I would like you to learn right now. They are the words egalitarian and complementarian egalitarian and complementarian. So the first term, egalitarian, means that men and women are uh, not only equal in every way, but their roles are the same in every way. There are no differences. This is the view of our culture. In fact, it, it's more complicated than that the, uh, the further we go. Um, and then the other view, the complementarian view, says that men and women are equal but have different roles and that a man and woman's relationship with one another is based upon complementarian roles. They have complementary roles. Now, personally, the one that comes easiest to me is the egalitarian position. I would be probably most easily find myself in the egalitarian camp. I, don't, I just do it easier. But as I read scripture and I've read, you know, two views of, uh, of women in the church or men in the church or whatever it is, um, I, I don't find that in scripture. And so I have to wrestle with this and say, well, well what does this mean for me? What does this mean for others? Um, recently, and I could say coincidentally, but I think providentially, um, I uh, was interacting with a young couple and uh, the man of this couple uh, had been a longtime Christian and they were attending a church in England. It was an evangelical church that had a complementarian position that the husband and wife uh, were in this context and everything was fine. Um, and, um, and the woman had more of a feminist background, but she actually felt pretty good in this context. It was, it was a great uh, church. They came here, they moved to the US and they started attending another church and, uh, and the woman actually got into a conflict with the pastor there because um, it was a complementarian church, but uh, the way it was done um, made her feel that she was sort of a second-class citizen, both in, uh, in the things that women were allowed to do, remarks that were made, just little things. It wasn't that it was overtly sexist, uh, but I don't think it's enough for Christian leaders who are men to say, um, you know, um, we'll draw the lines and we'll just go with that and everything's fine. I actually think that Christian leaders who are men need to be advocates for their sisters in Christ who are leaders. We need to. We absolutely have to in the context. Otherwise, things don't go well. And I believe it's biblical, which I'll explain in just a minute here. So, um, so we're, 
walking this complementarian rule down, and, and incidentally, people try to get out of this in so many ways theologically, and, uh, and Kent Hughes had, you know, seven other potential views on this and why. I'm not going to go through all those different things. I'm just going to kind of stay with the text here. Um, but, but there's a lot of reading that could be done on this. And, and uh, it's actually the egalitarians that convinced me they were wrong as I tried to read you know, what they had to say and their arguments and things. Um, but as we follow Paul's reasoning, um, it's um, on face value a little difficult Um, So what's his reason for this? Well, he says in um, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who deceived him and became a sinner. You're like, wait a minute. And then it gets worse. The woman, uh, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in their faith, love, holiness, and propriety. And, uh, And so you look at that and you go, what do we do with that? Well, let's explain it. Verse 13, Adam was formed and, the first, uh, and then Eve. Uh, and what he's doing is he's rooting his argument in the created order. So Paul is saying, this is how God formed things. Uh, by the way, Genesis 1.27 is the text that says, together men and women were formed in God's image. So they're, together they have a complementary way of being formed into um, to God's image. But as we get into Genesis chapter 2, we see the man was formed first, and then the woman was formed to be his helper. Out, uh, Tim Keller has a, uh, a book on marriage, and he says, you know, the word helper here is not like the helper that's going to do these little things for you. This is a strong helper. Like in Psalm 21, where it's talking about uh, uh, the Lord is your help. This is, this is different than a, a, a weak helper. So it's a, a complementary mate has been formed for you, but there is some sort of order in this creation. And then we, we go into the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, where it talks about the role of men and women in marriage. And, uh, and there are just several other places. And, and this word submission gets used. And, uh, and then we say, well, I don't like that. But then we go to Philippians 2 and other parts of Scripture, and we find the Son, Jesus the Son, submitting to God the Father. And then God the Father glorifying Jesus the Son. And in so doing, there is a, an order of creation that takes place where Jesus doesn't find this onerous. As he submits to God the Father, he is glorified. And then it gets compared to Jesus and the church. So the, the husband and wife uh, situ- situation gets compared to Jesus' uh, role with the church. And what did Jesus do for the church? Jesus died for the church. And so um, I think when we think about this context, if someone is over someone else, if someone's submitting to the other person, in a Christian context, the person they're submitting to needs to die for the person who's submitting to them. You need to lay it down and advocate for that person to the greatest degree possible if you're in that position. Um, When it says that uh, Adam was not the one deceived, but it was the woman deceived who became the sinner, then we move on to Genesis 3. 
So we've been in Genesis 2, we moved to Genesis 3, and, and what happened in Genesis 3? Well, you know, there's the story of the, of the snake, um, the uh, devil snake, um, that, uh, that gets Eve to eat the fruit God told her not to eat. Um, and so Eve was the first deceived. You're like, well, what's the deal with that? Well, if we follow the line of thinking with created order, who was supposed to make the decision there? It was the man. Where was the man? in that chapter. Does anybody know? Who, who was with her? Oh, wait a minute. So the woman made this decision. What did the man say? Nothing. He said, okay. Yeah. He, then he took a bite. But what was broken there was the created order. The man should have taken charge. The woman should not have made the decision. Um, so there's an orderliness to this that's part of, it's not the whole story, but it's part of the story. God's created order that there's supposed to be some role between the man and the woman, a spiritual role that takes place. And incidentally, all that we're talking about is in the context of the church here. Um, and then the woman will be saved through childbearing. Oh, let's, let's stop one more time. So if we, we're going to proceed just one chapter past where his argument went to. So um, part of the curse was your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That was part of the curse in Genesis 3. Now I had to do some uh, research on that word desire in seminary and I learned that that word desire is the very same word uh, desire that shows up in Genesis 4 uh, where God tells Cain that, um, that sin desires to master you. Sin desires to, to have you for lunch, but you need to overcome it. And so it seems that um, when the part of the curse is your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. This is not sexual desire. It's a desire of one-upmanship, of who is in charge and what does being in charge even mean. And from a Christian perspective, being in charge means you die for the other person, but this is not what they're fighting for. So this plays itself out in marriages, it plays itself out in culture, it's part of the warp and woof of our society. And so it's no wonder it's an issue. The woman being saved through childbearing, I, I always look for another text to sort of help me understand the one I'm reading, and, uh, and there isn't another one on this. So I think after reading some of the, the different commentaries and, and working my way through this, um, some have said, well, childbearing relates to the childbearing of Jesus, but that would be a little bit esoteric. I think probably more clearly and more related to this passage, it would be, um, what is the one unique thing that a woman can do that a man cannot? That's having a child. That's indisputable. You can dispute other things, but you can't dispute that. A woman can have a child, a man cannot. By pressing into the, the, uh, this complementarian or this orderliness um, understanding of life, it actually helps uh, us with our sanctification. By not fighting against this, it helps us to grow uh, closer to God. So I believe that's what's taking place there. Now, how'd I do? Was it okay? It wasn't too painful? It's like you go into the doctor's office, you go, I don't know if I want to do this. But um, So what do we do with all this? What do we do with this understanding um, you know, um, of, of gender roles. We'll just start there. And uh, I just want to say this. Um, 
Let's look at a few more examples in scripture. So Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos. Priscilla's name showed up first. Um, when the church in Philippi was established, it was established in Lydia's house, a seller of purple cloth who was a businesswoman. Um, and we can go on. Second Kings 34, let's go to the Old Testament. King Josiah and his advisors didn't know what else to do. They consulted, you don't know this, do you? Hold of the prophetess who told them what they should do. And we can go on and on. Uh, women helped finance Jesus' ministry. One of them was Joanna, the manager of Herod's household. And she was also one of the women at the tomb. Um, what we're talking about with women in ministry clearly is not can women minister or men minister. Um, they can both minister, and sometimes, uh, like in the case of Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla was clearly uh, the leader in that case. In the normal discourse of life and in, in, uh, in leadership in various capacities, uh, men and women may lead. Um, I think this shows up in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, right before the qualifications of eldership, to help us understand there are some things here that are um, explicitly for men and for women. And for Life Spring Community Church, we believe that, um, and as we read scripture, that the eldership itself is reserved for men. And so if some people have come up to me and said, you know, Cabot, um, uh, would, would women become elders here? And I said, well, no, not according to our reader, reading of scripture, uh, probably not elders and, and not preaching, because those are two things we believe are reserved for men in this context. That said, so if you come from Willow Creek or another church that has an egalitarian viewpoint, you're going to feel a little funny about that. On the other hand, uh, deacons and deaconesses are men and women. And uh, women serve in all sorts of different capacities as leaders in the church. Now, my personal view, and, and you know, I've already given you my cards a little bit. I'm a little more on the egalitarian bent. I am for advocating for women in every capacity possible. Um, what I would like to do is keep our elders to a sort of a smaller group and greatly expand deacons, uh, ministry leaders, any capacity um, that uh, women can lead, we want to do that uh, in this context. Um, and if I'm going to err, I always try to err on the side of grace and uh, in, in my understanding, grace and love. Um, but I will not, um, and I don't think any of us should equivocate on the truth uh, as we read it in Scripture, whether we like it or not. So uh, what that also means is if you have a different background um, where women are, don't do certain things and they start doing them here, and we believe that there's biblical precedence for it, uh, like the people at Willow Creek that think there should be women elders, you might feel funny because uh, you're, you're thinking, well, are, should, should we be doing this in the context of the church here? And, uh, and I, I just encourage you, don't go by your feelings, go by what you read. And if you think I'm doing something wrong or the elders are doing something wrong, let us know because we are just people and, uh, and we're reading God's word and doing the best we can. All right, takeaway, and I know we're going a little long, sorry, but I wanted to make sure that I was uh, as clear as possible. Um, so takeaways, um, please do this, pray in all sorts of occasions. Pray as you walk, pray as you make dinner, pray as you talk to people, pray for them. Pray for the leaders of this church, we need it. 
Pray for leaders of the church throughout the world. Pray for our governmental leaders, whether you like them or hate them. Pray for them. And then, um, you know, I remember when our kids were little, uh, we were thinking about survival. I don't know if you're a, a young parent, but you might be thinking at times about survival. And uh, on the way out the door, I said, you know, I don't think we should just survive. I think we should thrive. And I believe as a complementarian church, this should not be a burden. This should not be seen as a negative. What we need to do is celebrate every good thing uh, that every person does here, that we need to be asking ourselves, men and women, what is God calling me to do? That we need to advocate for one another. That if you're a man, you're advocating for your sisters in Christ. If you're a woman and there's something that you want to do, you should do it. Um, but if there's something that it says we're not supposed to do, we also don't do it. And that together we're seeking to understand God's good and perfect will through his word. Uh, please bow your heads with me. Uh, Father, as we read this difficult text, um, I just pray that anything I've said that's not of you would just fall to the ground. And uh, anything that it is of you, Lord, that would just lodge it in our hearts, that you would help us to wholeheartedly embrace what you have for us, uh, whether it comes naturally or not, that we'd read your word and love it, that we would love one another. And I, I pray for the women in this congregation that you would bless them and help them to be uh, beautiful and fruitful and, and uh, to rejoice in life. I pray for the men in this congregation that you would help them to do likewise, strengthen the inner person, but help us also to, uh, to lift up our sisters in Christ. And, uh, and Lord, I, I just really pray that all of us would be encouraged to not only um, read your word, but to do what it says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.